This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Helen Bennett, an expert in helping people with bulimia. During my coaching, I've come to realize the strong comparisons between drinking alcohol to excess and patterns of disordered eating. The main difference being, we all have to eat. This is a fascinating conversation, including uncovering my own dysfunctional relationship with food. And I think this discussion will continue with further episodes, so please let us know what you think. Don't forget to listen to the short ads at the beginning, and to subscribe, and press the follow button. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy the show. So welcome, Helen, to my podcast, One for the Road. Uh, I'm really grateful that you've decided to join me today, and today's podcast is slightly different, uh, and I tell the listeners why. is because more and more clients that come to me recently, the more I dig deeper into their story of their problem with alcohol, I realize there's underlying problems with their eating as well. And I find that actually this is more of a tricky subject because it's even more silent than the drinking, you know. And I um, was headed your way by an actual client of mine that said you were brilliant. You worked so brilliant in this field. And I thought it'd be really useful to get you on today to cover this subject of disordered eating, actually. And there are a lot of crossovers um, between the two. And I'm going to read these slowly so they sink in, so people can possibly relate feelings of shame, guilt, numbing out, feelings of desperation, embarrassment, self-loathing, stigma and shame, secrecy, not feeling enough, not meeting one's emotional needs. But the big difference is you can quit booze, but you can't stop eating, right? And this is where 
I thought we could have a really, really good conversation together about this subject. So maybe we can start by asking you to introduce yourself um, so you can tell everyone a bit about yourself. That would be a long story. Firstly, thanks, Dave. I'm super excited to chat about this. I feel like there's so many things we're going to discover in this conversation today. So I'm really looking forward to lending my voice to this a bit because I think what you said is so important is that it's so silent. There's a lot of people feeling like they're out of control around food, but they're too ashamed to admit it. And so we can really dive into that. I love that you said that straight up. So um, I guess the short story is I struggled with bulimia. So I was binge eating, losing control around food, and then purging by actually vomiting. But I was also exercising like a maniac. So basically, I just was in this horrific vicious cycle. And this lasted for 20 years where I felt completely out of control. The minute I started eating, I just wanted to keep going. And then, of course, I'd be slammed in with this feeling of, oh, my God, what have I done? And then I have to undo all the damage. And when I discovered vomiting, it was it was just too easy because then I could get my drug of choice and get rid of it and then go at it again. Um, and obviously, I was just caught in this horrific cycle of shame. I didn't want to tell anybody. I felt, I mean, how disgusting is that? You know, all the thoughts. But what I couldn't have known at the time was just, well, actually, no, let me back up. What I didn't know at the time is starting to do things like vomiting and losing control around food. Once that cycle starts, a bit like I'm sure with the drinking, it's really hard to stop. And nobody really gets that message is that we kind of think, oh, no, but just stop doing it. We'll just stop vomiting, Helen. We'll just stop, stop overeating. Just stop when you're full. But if it was that easy, I promise I would have done it. I tried for 20 years. I was desperate. I was trying everything I could think of, except for what it turned out to be kind of the thing that I really needed to do. But um, this idea that it should just be easy, it's just not true. And I think if I can deliver like one message to somebody who's feeling that real sense of shame, that surely I should just be able to stop this. You're not broken. It's okay. This is really challenging. And it's as challenging, if not more challenging than other addictions, because to your point, we have to have a new, we have to create an entirely new relationship with food. Yeah, I specialize in bulimia, but I see there's just this broad arena of people who don't necessarily struggle with vomiting, but they definitely were going to resonate with that feeling of losing control and then having to try and undo the damage, so to speak. Yeah. Can you go into that then? Because like, you know what I said about you can quit booze, but you can't quit food. I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it would be similar to saying, right, you've got to stop drinking. Um, but you have to have a couple of glasses of wine today in the process because, you know, it's so hard, isn't it? We have to eat. And if you've got a disordered relationship with food, yeah, I would love to know the sort of science behind that of leading up to that disordered eating, the purging. How, what were your emotions? Oh, oh, gosh, there's a lot in that. So first of all, I think that analogy is perfect. I really, I really got, once I, my recovery began in earnest, when I started, there's a few things that happened that were sort of the tipping point. The one is I stopped thinking of it just like disorder and I started to think about it more like addiction. And that's when I really started to find some solutions. However, I've learned that while that analogy is a good one, it's also tricky because we can't be once an addict, always an addict with an eating disorder, because that would mean every time you eat, you're going to be in trouble. So we ha there's this 
it's almost like we need a new name for this type of thing. But disorder didn't feel, disorder just feels like, ah, it's a little bit out of whack, you know. But this was like full-on addiction, the cravings, the withdrawal, that sense of like, oh, I've got to get my fix. And you can't think of anything else but, you know, the need to purge or the need to binge eat. You know, imagine a typical day of like, because what I find a bit like my usual client that comes to me is uh, a functioning, say, woman uh, of a certain age that um, functions perfectly in their life. You would never think there was any issue at all. They they are brilliant mums. They do the school run. They're great at business. Everything is running externally perfectly to everyone else. Yeah, you've basically just described all my clients. (laughs) Yeah, but (laughs) with grey area drinkers as well, you know, this is why it's so secret because they don't want people to know they've got a problem because they look great from the outside and it's how they feel inside. So I think that where I was getting here Mm. was, you know, when you got this issue with your eating, how did you feel inside um, on a typical day of binging, purging, what led up to it? What do you think was going on for you? I think what you've just said has, has, you've hit on the core of the the problem. And I imagine it's identical with, with drinking. It's that relentless feeling of not being enough. The relentless sort of quest for, if I could just get everything right, and if I could just do everything right and be a great daughter and a great girlfriend and a great business owner and a great then everything would be fine. And all the while, of course, outwardly presenting as somebody, I was running a guest house, was very successful. I knew people thought I had a good body. I didn't seem to think that, you know, I didn't necessarily agree at the time. But all things considered, outwardly, I knew I looked like somebody who had it together. But inwardly, I was just absolutely, you know what it is? I always felt like anything that I've achieved, wasn't real because I've been hiding this horrific relationship with food. So when or, or exercise. So when somebody says, "Wow, you know, you've just got it together and you're so incredible," so I always thought it's not true. If only you knew. If only you knew. And the problem is, this is so hidden because plenty of people really did not know. And there might be people who listen to this podcast who who still don't know that I had an eating disorder and will be like, "Whoa, Helen, I had no idea." Yeah. So we've, I think if the women listening to this who are resonating, that they're outwardly projecting something that's really together, but inwardly just feel like an absolute mess and out of control. So in a way, I think to your point, the emotion of that, the shame and the guilt, yeah. actually, of course, creates the need for the, the numbing, the need for that escape, just yeah. for a moment of feeling relief or yeah, just escaping from the endless cycle of not being enough. Right. That's probably the key. I mean, yeah. the bottom line, if we had to pick one thing, that would be it. The yeah, I, I can relate undeserving. to that. It, you know, with grey area drinkers, it, it's exactly that. And then after that comes the shame and the guilt. So imagine when you binge, uh, and and not all binge eaters purge either, do they? Yeah, and not all um, purges binge. There's just a sort of... They've just eaten too much. It's just that little bit over the line, but it feels like, oh, no, now I've blown it. Now I'm also a disaster. And just the inability to sit with that real discomfort of the food in their tummy. Because the food, the one thing I think where eating disorder will be slightly different is 
the food or the potential for weight gain from eating is also part of the shame. And I mean, my whole eating disorder manifested very simply as being a little girl who wanted a boyfriend desperately and getting this idea from society and mum and the world that if I could just be thin enough and beautiful enough, then boys would like me. And I desperately wanted that relationship. And, you know, it was started for such a simple and really sweet kind of reason. But my, my logic was flawed. And my logic was, if I could just be in a good body, then I will be loved. Um, and the good body meant being thin. So there's yeah. that sort of connection between the not enoughness and the yeah. potential solution. So I was giving myself a solution for something I really wanted, which was to feel deserving of love, to feel yeah. worthy enough to be loved. But I had the equation wrong <laughs> the whole time. But it, it really goes to show uh, the level of where um, emotion comes into it. Yeah. You know, it's not just the act, it's the emotional side of it. And what you yeah. said there is re- really goosebumpy for me, right? Because we were talking about women, right? But mm. I know men, a lot of men, including myself, um, yeah. who has disordered eating. So, for instance, I could have a really busy day uh, in the office here with clients, um, doing stuff for the podcast, doing a bit of filming in that. Uh, I, I'd have eaten a, a nice breakfast, which would be muesli, banana, grapes, strawberries, you know, yogurt, and really, really healthy. Yeah. Um, do a, a quite heavy session with someone uh, and then think, do you know what? That went really well and I need a reward. So I'll have two big slabs of peanut butter on toast with a coffee. And then, well, I'm not hungry. It's yeah, coffee. It's I was about reward. to ask. That was my next question. Yeah, but so I'm really not, not hungry. Yeah. It's coming from a feeling of I need a reward, yes. right? And also, we we can cover this later. The feeling of reward can tie into when we stop drinking. Have we really resolved what is underneath the emotions of drinking? Because if we haven't, then we go on to other things that can yes. include things like gambling, sex addiction, online shopping, or food, right? And the trouble with that is, with the food, is quite often we talk about the sugar monster comes in, Mm. right, where we we got the sweet tooth and we go, oh, my God, uh, if I give up drinking, that means I'm going to lose weight, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite often we don't. Uh, It takes ages for the body um, and the brain to recalibrate. Uh, and also we're dealing with a sugar monster where people say, I can't stop eating um, mm. wine gums and cake and biscuits and stuff. And I always say to them, well, don't worry about that side. Just concentrate on stopping drinking, right? Mm. But then that becomes a big issue in their life as well. Then the eating becomes out of control because you haven't dealt with the emotional side of what's really going on. Yeah, there's a lot to that. So I think that... For some people, the food, the cross-addiction moving from booze into food will be exactly that. The food becomes, oh, this is actually quite a nice replacement. And it sort of gives me the same thing, a bit of relief, a bit of buzz, a moment of numbing um, from that emotional need for reward or the end of the day, I'm exhausted and I just want to let go or whatever it might be. You're spot on. So getting clear on what's triggering, it's not one of my favorite words, but it is true, that's triggering the need for the booze or the food or whatever the drug of choice is. It's so important. And if we don't really get to the root of that, then you're absolutely right. They'll just move to another 
problem. I mean, I had a client who started shoplifting and she was doing really well with the eating disorder. And I was like, whoa, back it up, you know, hold on, what's yeah, going on yeah. here? We had to figure out what was driving the need to hit that button, that lever. But I do want to be clear that with eating disorders, if people have come into it before booze, so let's say they didn't have a problem with booze, but they started yeah. with the eating disorder, but so often it's for as simple as reason like me. It was just a practical solution. And then, oh boy, and this is where the real trouble starts. This very practical thing, eating too much, getting rid of it, you get a high from the getting rid of it. You get a high from the starving, the, the fasting. You know, there's, there's stuff to that as well, the release of a purge. Mm. All of those feelings, oh my gosh, look at this. They also meet my emotional needs and just about every one. Because if you've got three behaviors, restricting, losing control around food, overeating, and purging, You've got three different feelings you can access that happen to work extremely well at numbing just about every single emotion. So we have this horrible game of whack-a-mole at the beginning where it feels like, the, I don't know if you've heard of HALT, uh, hang, ha, yeah. what's it? Hungry, hungry angry, angry, lonely, lonely tired. tired yeah. If you chat to anybody in eating disorder recovery, they'll say, man, it would be anything. I could be happy. I could be sad. I could be tired. I could be awake. And, and I was just using the behaviors to numb every single yeah. emotion. Yeah. And so at first it feels a bit overwhelming, um, but it's cool. We just take it a step at a time and you kind of work the easy ones first and then you get good at managing those emotions. And then usually once the disordered eating and the physiological shifts, because with drinking as well, I imagine what 21 days out of dealing with the real withdrawal feeling from the dopamine spikes. And once that's stabilized, then we go, okay, well, actually I can tell when I'm hungry I'm stopping when I'm full, but every now and again, a big emotional charge might send me off the rails. And I noticed that big time. It was, oh, I'm actually really good. I've got a great relationship with food. But ooh, when I fly home to South Africa, because I'm currently in Spain, yeah. you know, usually there's a few triggers out there. And it's usually coming from something deep in my childhood or in my teens where something similar happens. And it just brings up that emotion. And my brain just goes, oh, you know what we do with this emotion? We go to food. And yeah. so I've got to be really slowing stuff down, noticing that if it happens. The good news is, though, over time, it doesn't happen as much because you retrain your brain how to handle yeah, those feelings. I, I relate to that, and I'll tell you why. Um, because I quite often work surrounding um, associations, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because in the beginning, what you say about the 21 days with the, the withdrawal symptoms or whatever, well, um, there's a thing in our thing called um, the pink cloud so it's euphoria of actually the beginning i can't believe i'm managing this i can't believe i haven't drank for seven days 14 days right so in essence it's the honeymoon period yeah right? because you've made the decision to do it you're actually doing it and you're doing it well and you're getting involved with conversations around it yeah i haven't had drink three days i've not drink for 10 days and whatever but then becomes or then comes the bit after that actually um you are doing it is this it um and you start to think about other things like how am i going to go on holiday and not drink you start to look at the bigger picture because the beginning is a smaller picture of day to day and then you start to look ahead and then you have this slump right and i'll give you a comparison to disordered eating for me um is that i could exercise really well um i could feel like i'm losing weight and then i will plateau and then i will go to a stage of like 
nothing's changing, sod it. And then yeah. in comes the self-sabotage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I can imagine, are there similarities there? Such an interesting question. So first, I love that pink cloud euphoria idea. The way I work with this is because, of course, you know, when we're doing anything with intensity, we're learning. I, th- I think of recovery as skills and drills training. We're really teaching people how to eat when they're hungry, how to stop when they're full. A lot of people say, I can't even hear hunger and fullness anymore. Cool. Okay. Let's start there. Let's learn. Let's put in some things you can do when that binge energy hits. I'm sure you do similar stuff with drinking as well. But you're right, like when they start to get that rhythm, then there's a bit of a euphoric period. However, with eating disorder recovery, in most cases, specifically with bulimia, I don't want to speak to anorexia, that's not my lane. But with people who are losing control around food and then trying to deal with the consequences of that, what we do is we build this mental, we create such a powerful experience of enjoyment around not doing the behaviors And I think I listened to a podcast with Andy that you did, I think, last week. And it was wonderful listening to you because you could almost hear this reinforcing conversation of how glorious it is to not do the behaviors. And we really start to wire that in. But I think it's easier a little bit because people genuinely don't want to lose control around food. They genuinely can't stand the fact that they're hiding and trying to purge, you know, creep away. And there's this feeling of, I actually can't wait to get rid of this. There's no part of me that wants this on the next holiday. So I think my work sounds like it's a bit easier from that perspective because there's there's a little bit of FOMO, but we do a lot of mental work around. But we're not saying you can never eat a chocolate again. We're saying, absolutely, if your tummy wants a chocolate, you're going to enjoy the chocolate. And so you can have whatever you want when you want it in line with your hunger and fullness. And that it takes a while for people to really get that. But it's so enjoyable knowing that if I really, really want a piece of cake this evening and it's available to me, if that's what my tummy's really asking for, I'm going to give it a piece of cake, you know, and then people don't feel FOMO because they can have what they want. And that is where you've nailed that. It's the, the complete difference between what you do and what I do, because there's no way I can say to you know, See how it goes. This the associations I were talking about, the holidays, the birthdays, the day off, where you think, oh, I've got tomorrow off so I can stay up and have another bottle of wine and then wreck the next day. It's like me saying to them, we can train you to manage those associations, to manage your cravings. So at some point, you will be able to have a glass of wine and enjoy. There's a difference because of the way it manufactures in your brain is that you have that one and you're straight back there in the majority of the time. The amount of people say, do you know what? I've had three months off and I think I can uh, manage to moderate. And I'm, okay, uh, well, let me tell you now, less than 5% of humans can actually do that ever. Um, so good luck with that one. But what you're saying is that you retrain people to manage because you have to eat, right? And that's the difference. Yeah, you yeah. Have to and eat. here's where, where I get excited because the good news is that when we train, and, you know, I'm open to there being an exception to this rule, you know, but in my experience, when we really train people to listen to hunger, and we could probably do this now together, you and I, and when you actually check in with your tummy, that's what I call it, a tummy check-in, you know, it sounds really sweet because it is, we're checking in with our body. Like, what do you need? What do you want? Are you hungry? How much? And how much would you want to be comfortable to the next mealtime. Your body, when you do that, genuinely 
generally and genuinely wants healthful food most of the time. If we've grown up in an environment, we've had access to helpful, healthful food. Every now and again, your body says, I need that chocolate. But what I know and somebody coming into my sort of coaching environment doesn't know is that when they get that ability to key in, 99, maybe not 99, it's in nine times out of 10, their body wants a healthful meal. And maybe it wants to have a bit of indulgence. That's not, but genuinely or, and generally, it wants to eat a really yummy whatever. Now, some days that might be um, something rich and creamy and other days it might be a healthful salad and you get really good at listening to that and you'll see it'll change with the weather and change with the hormones. And But once you start seeing that rhythm and you realize your body actually can be trusted, it might want occasionally those things, the relief people start to feel that they can actually trust their body's instincts. Because what you just described is so perfect. You had this really yummy breakfast. It sounded delicious, right? I'm sure you actively enjoyed it. You weren't forcing yourself through some vile supplement or something you didn't enjoy. Yeah, yeah. But then you noticed, oh, I'm not hungry, but I've done this really hard session or a couple of sessions with a client, and yeah. I'm wanting to eat for not hunger? Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And so what we do is we're really yeah. gentle. People can choose to do that, but I want them to do it with that power of real intentional choice. There's nothing wrong with indulging. There's nothing wrong with giving ourselves a reward. But if it becomes this thing that we're losing control over and we're hitting that button every five minutes, that's where it's tricky. So we just slow it down. We get that distinction that you can tell that you're not hungry, but you're wanting to eat anyway. Now you've got some choices. And we just open up that space and slowly you become empowered to say, no, I'm not going to have that thing. I don't actually need it versus I can't help myself. I have to have it. Oh, that's interesting, right? So what, what my brain works like the clappers when, when I do these things, right? So what I was yeah. thinking then, right, was um, cravings around alcohol, right? So we've got a favorite wine or a favorite beer, favorite gin or mm-hmm. vodka, right? And, and, and that taps into our, I really want that. So when we've given up drinking, that that voice comes in, the cravings, and it's at a certain time as well, right? So if we drink at, say, five o'clock, around four, half past four, your brain's saying, ooh, you can have a drink soon. So you get the dopamine hit, right? So I was thinking about then my um, favourite thing, and I grew up with it, right? This is interesting. I've only just thought of this. My mum used to make me peanut butter sandwiches <gasps> every single day. Yeah, there right? it is. Yeah, every single day as a kid. No, I would have nothing else, right? Uh, so that is a light bulb moment. Now, I absolutely love peanut mm, butter. Right? Love it. So I, I trick myself. Oh, well, I buy the expensive one. It's got no palm oil, no, no extra added sugar and whatnot. Right. So that's where it begins for me. It's like going in the supermarket and not buying the wine, right? Because I know if I buy that peanut butter, right, I'm going to eat it all. I will be spooning it out the jar every now and again. I think, oh, I'm a little bit um, peckish. Oh, I'll just get a teaspoon, put a big wad on the spoon and eat it right and the thing for me is to not bite because i know i'm greedy right i i've i okay. am greedy i acknowledge that right but that's something for yeah. me to work on yeah. helen you know and and i can use that to address many other areas in my life you know because i'm weak-willed around food so i do have a bad relationship with food because I am weak willed, I'm greedy, and also I'm constantly looking for 
some kind of reward, right? So it could be me looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, I've lost a bit of weight. I actually look all right. I can justify eating a bit more now because oh I'm greedy. Goodness. And that's yeah. where... Yeah, I do. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm just itching to get head. coaching now. Now my whole coaching game is coming. I want to dive into yeah, all yeah, of this. Yeah, but that's know? how my mindset yeah. went. So then what I do, I start to think about, well, actually, you've stopped drinking, which is one of the best things ever yeah. in the world for me, right? Uh, I've managed to go from that to there, and I don't even think about it. So if I can do that, I can address my relationship mm. with food. But when I do that, it's then... What does that leave me with? Where's my reward there, right? Oh, I'm climbing a mountain. I'm uh, exercising. I've got this, that, and that. But it doesn't have the same Mm. feeling for me, right? And that's the important thing, I think, to address here is what feeling does that give me? Is it comfort? Is it the fact I'm doing it in secret? What is it that it is making me feel like that? And I think once you get to find that out is when you can address it and this is why I, with my coaching, I delve right down to what's behind the addiction. Uh, and I imagine your work is Very. similar to that, right? And, you know, just listening to you speak, and I think so many people are going to be resonating with this. Firstly, I also love peanut butter. And it's there's something to this peanut butter story because chocolate and peanut butter are the things I see a lot of people saying, oh, I just can't stop once I start, you know. Um, so we create a new relationship with that. But what was interesting is the way you phrased, I'm greedy, um, let me, I wrote it down, I'm weak-willed around food. Now, if we were working together, we'd drill into that a little bit because my, in my experience, unless you're an exception to the rule, you're unlikely to be greedy. You're a human being. You've got certain you know, needs for food and that, and there's something enjoyable about sort of letting go and having too much. Um, and that's totally normal and, and human. So it'd be interesting to know where this greedy idea came from. but the, the I'm weak world around food is interesting because I feel so confident that if I was to teach you tummy check-ins and stopping when you're full, you would see it's not weak willed. I bet you've got a ton of discipline in a million other places in your life. So I think to you, your point, there's something that the loss of control or the eating what you shouldn't is giving you. It feels almost a little Oh, it's good to be naughty for a change. I don't know if I've got this right. Like yeah. I'm doing all these things that yeah, are helpful yeah. and I've stopped drinking. Where do you get to just be a little bit broken, a little bit imperfect, yeah. a little? And I see that a lot with these women because they've got unbelievable lives, to-do lists coming up. I mean, I'm the same still, you know, I'm just, I allow myself to giggle a bit more at myself. But where do we just get to be frivolous and watch Love Island and not care what people think or whatever, you know? And so sometimes you almost don't want to take the food away or the binging or in your case, the peanut butter, because where would you get to just be a little bit not perfect? I really hear that. (laughs) It's an idea. I mean, I'd want to dive in and see, but it's interesting as well that it came so clearly out of your childhood with mum. So there's a comfort there and a Mm. well done, maybe job well done. Something like that. Mm. And another thing as well, it's like there's a saying I use that a car mechanic never services his car. car (laughs) So I'm I'm constantly trying to help people with the language they use around themselves, right? The labeling, right? So I've just labeled myself weak willed around food. I'm greedy. And I just think that's who I am. That defines me. Yeah, so we would food, want to rework right? that to be a little but, bit more empowering. <laughs> yeah. 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 But what you said, there's something around food that is a little bit yeah. naughty. Yeah, because 
I can go out and think, do you know what? I've had a, a little bit it's too much peanut butter and, and I'll find a really nice oldie worldly tea shop that do um, uh, baked in fruit scones, cream, cream teas, you know, where you get the jam and the clotted cream. And I think, oh, God, I had a couple of bits of uh, <laughs> peanut butter on toast morning. I'd be all right. It'd yeah. be all right. You deserve yeah. the treat. There's a little you know boy I mean? that just and, came and, out. Your face literally, t- I could almost imagine you when you were younger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting, actually, because I always talk about my childhood and my experiences around alcohol. And I've never, ever dived into it with my experiences around yeah. food. And my mum and dad, they always supplied a healthy meal. Right. It was always a healthy mode. But I grew up with that mindset. And I, I must admit, I've used it myself. You've got to clear your plate. You, yeah. If you don't eat all your dinner, you're not getting pudding. And I'm guilty of that because that's what I was taught growing up. Right. But now I'm looking at it differently. Is is like you've got to trust yourself that if you're not hungry, you don't have yeah. to eat it. Kind yeah. of thing. Uh, but it, it was tapped into me. I've never looked at my relationship with food growing up which is probably defined how i speak to myself now you're greedy you've got a bad relationship with food go it's really fascinating and i love that you've noticed that it came out of your childhood because i'm also a member of the clean plate club which means that i mean Mm. i can't blame our parents right they for money reasons or whatever it makes sense you know the kids need to eat but waste you can't yeah, yeah, waste you can't, food there's yeah. there's little and money there's this so reward for doing this hard thing at the end of the if you can get through the meal then you get the ice cream or whatever that was our thing at home so we've mm. built these unbelievable associations with what food means but what i'm really hearing as i listen to you is and i was i am still a little bit there in terms of the when am i good and when am i bad you know what makes me good today what makes me bad today and i think what's so mm. sad is We've become, as a society, so we're drawing these lines around food where if you have any sugar at all, you know, that's a sign of weakness. Oh, it's a bit over the top, right? But you know what I mean? So we actually, maybe we just needed a bit of peanut butter or whatever, but our brains wanted to do, oh, no, now I've done this bad thing. And then you, which is interesting, you jumped into that classic you know pushing the bucket button oh well then i'll go and have the clotted cream but actually if it wasn't if you'd thought of it as like i've just had a piece of bit of peanut butter maybe i had a bit more than i needed not the end of the world then when you've approached the scone with the you know the clotted cream and the jam and all the rest you might have been not so compelled to just go oh well i've already i've already broken this run of good and now i'm this bad person so i may as well just keep going down this road I, i'll tell you where i relate to that is is uh weekend drinkers yeah Right. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, and they go, right, I'm, I'm not going to drink in the week, right? Yeah. So they have a skin flick the weekend and Sunday they think, do you know what, I'm going to uh, a little bit more because I'm going to be really oh, yeah. good in the week. So it's yeah. all or nothing. Yeah, again, good or right? bad. So Monday, Tuesday, they're fine because they think, oh, it's Monday, I feel a bit hanging anyway. Tuesday, it's what well, I did yesterday, all right. Wednesday, the old voice starts coming, the reward mm. voice, right, of like, Oh, you've had a couple of days off. Maybe you could have just the one, right? So you break the seal then. Thursday, and you don't just have one mm. in general, right? Thursday comes, you think, oh, I messed it up last night, so I'll start again Monday. Yeah. So you're actually only doing two days yeah. a week, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's this I love because this speaks to, and I'm sure everybody's going to resonate, this thing that we do in society at the moment. It's like 
you're going to be good during the week. So again, it's good and bad, you know, mm. good during the week. And then on the weekends, it's cheat meals. I mean, the fact that we even call it cheating, we're cheating. It's like, you, it's, that, you know, it's yeah. the languaging around this. And this is why changing the wording, really reframing, not in the fake it till you make it kind of way, although that can work, but it's really useful to start rewording the, uh, the way we think about food in relation to our being valuable or worthy or good enough. Because if the minute I have a chocolate, I'm a bad person, that makes me feel like shit. Then I'm probably going to excuse my language. Then I'm probably going to do more of that. You know, I'm just going to eat more because now I feel bad about myself until maybe eventually I get to bed and then I can wake up and suddenly see the wood for the trees a little bit in the morning. But what I'm really exploring at the moment is, is this idea of like, how do we really embrace ourselves with the imperfection? Let's allow for some reward days or days where we just lounge around in our pajamas and really allow for that just being part of us instead of it always having to be, I've got to do this and do that. And no, you know, never can I be a bad person. And let's just find ways to let go and let our hair down and have fun and be a bit wild and free and be cool with that and make mistakes, be messy. Yeah. You know, and just be like, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. And and that, you know, that taps into me as well when I coach people to say, you know, like you have to find something to fill the void because the difference with the alcohols I said before is that you you have to take it out and that's the end of it, right? But I always say to people, find reinvent your old hobbies, explore different things, align with different Mm. people, well, you know, like join cycling clubs in the morning or go and join the Pilates or yoga thing. You need to fill the void, yeah. right? Like you need to change your life. Um, and, and that's where you can find different things that add rewards to your life, mm. right? That's that's the important thing there. But, um, oh, my God, I could I know, me too. And I've just, but I'll just highlight, I think there's a distinction as well, again, with maybe the drinking and the eating because we have to create a whole new relationship with food that's enjoyable and carefree and some days we indulge and other days we don't. But the void thing's interesting because people definitely eat to fill that void, to fill the not enoughness, the feeling but lost, all of that stuff. But what's interesting is when I work with people, we try not to go to alternative coping mechanisms. We actually really trying to, a lot of people will laugh and say when they get through the sort of worst of the eating disorder recovery, and they're starting to feel, oh, this is easy and automatic. Their life is almost identical <laughs> to what it was, but now they just think about it differently. Um, even though they've yeah. got carte blanche to put in that void, whatever they want, so often there will be new things coming in, new relationships. People try things and also, there's a lot of space and time and, and mental bandwidth to do new stuff. But so often it's actually just they end up doing very much the same thing. They're just so much happier with it all. Oh, do you know what, what hits me there is like with drinking, you have to end the relationship. Nailed it. There we go. With, so it's like a new relationship yeah, needs with to come eating, in. eating, you have to almost go to couples counseling and work yeah. with the relationship. I've often thought myself as a couples coach, a counseling counselor between food and the body. You know, it's like, let's rebuild this yeah. relationship. There's been a lot of hatred and loathing and lack of trust that we basically have to come bring it all down to this feeling of like, yeah, I get you. I see you. You see me. We're cool. You know, we trust each other over a period of time because it's a long journey. Yeah. We start to go, oh, no, we're actually good. And actually, we've got this really nice relationship with food now. Not perfect. Not perfect. But, geez, a far cry from where they were, you know. 
Yeah, and what exactly. is perfect? We're never really there, are we? It's just a journey. No, because you, uh, you know, I, I was talking about the women I work with that they're high functioning business people. But what about athletes? Mm. I mean, you, you get professional athletes and sportsmen yeah. that have an odd relationship yeah. with food. And right? it's so normalized now, it's almost expected. I watched uh, something on Instagram earlier where it was just like normalizing this real restrictive relationship with food. And there's, it's no surprise that when I, you know, I, I work in Spain, so I advertise on Facebook. It's the best way for me to get um, out there and get clients. And one of the targets I use, because I was there, is things like triathlon and running and CrossFit, you know, because I know there's just so much silent disorder happening in that space. Because this idea of a restrictive, almost punitive relationship with food in service of the goal of being an athlete is normalized. And I think it is extremely tricky working with somebody for whom they're, especially a professional athlete or model or TV personality, for whom their body is actually part of how they get paid. Now, athletes are easier in a way because what they start to realize so often, and, you know, again, there are exceptions to this rule, but when they tune in to their body's hunger and their body's fullness and doing exactly, they may not even eat that differently to when they were on this highly restrictive meal plan, but they will feel a lot better. They'll stop losing control around food, and ultimately they perform better too because they're not denying their body the rest or the nutrients. When we, do with eating, when we deal with eating disorder recovery, we've really got to rework Often the exercise thing, what does my body actually want to do today versus I've got to go to that gym? Not for everybody, but I see a big, big one is around rest as well. So we rebuild the relationship with rest and recovery and food. And with athletes, as we start to build, redo those two things, in general, they will perform better. But boy, it takes a leap of trust and they're not going to well and lean into that because the old voice, the old things they believe classic Marissa Pierre, we're changing their beliefs, will be screaming at them, you're going to get fat, you're going to slow down, and all the things that are going to be scary for them. So it takes a huge willingness and desire. And you know what I would do is we just go super slowly. There's no rush. Let's just do one, one meal. Let's just do breakfast. Get breakfast right this week, and we can grow from there. Yeah. But I think if it's somebody in a, in a body that is underweight, like a model or something like that, that's tricky because they could literally lose their job if they put on weight. So that's, that's oh challenging. But then people have got decisions to make because sometimes you are actually faced with, am I choosing the disorder or am I choosing this other thing? And what scares me is some people will actually choose the disorder willingly rather than gain weight. But at least they've made a choice. <laughs> Not ideal, <laughs> but it's the world we live in. Yeah, it's the world we live in. You know, like I, I've recently seen a couple of TV presenters that uh, uh, put on a little bit of weight uh, and I saw that it was all over the press you know this terrible shaming of actually they look really healthy um, but they've just put on a, a few pounds but I think they look great you know so it goes on to this whole calorie mm, deficit yeah, thing the new trend know, like well it's been around for a long time I think and this calorie deficit and you see it now like you um, the average person requires 2000 calories a day or whatnot and then you go straight to oh my god when i've got a um scanner 
on my phone that tells you how many calories yeah. in something, right? And I and I was out the other day and I scanned this um, for heater thing, and it was like nine hundred twenty five mm-hmm. calories, right, for one um, like wrap, like a wrap in yeah. MS or something, right? And my brain went to, oh my god, that's half of my daily intake in one thing that lasts me about three minutes, right now. I'm a big bloke, so I, I imagine that I've got more um, allowed calories, but it takes me down in a really unhealthy path of me, right? And that leads into the amount of people that don't eat to allow for the calorie intake of alcohol, right? And I know people like that. They just don't eat because they think, you know, I don't know, I should know this, but I imagine – a bottle of wine is 800 to 1,000 calories oh, or even okay. more, right? <laughs> Whatever yeah. it is. And I should know that, but I don't know it all. Um, <laughs> you don't but, know it all, day. You know, they allow. No, I certainly don't. But I I, I know yeah. people do that. Yeah, because the, the, faulty, the faulty idea is, I can hear it under screaming underneath, is I should only eat. 2000 calories a day, maybe another hundred or two if I'm whatever, or maybe more if I'm an athlete. But what happens on the day when you want double? What happens on the day when you've trained like a mofo the day before? Or, and this is where women are going to get a huge sigh of relief here. Our hormonal cycles take a month. I think for men, it's sort of 24 hours. So there's going to be periods of the month where you're really hungry and periods of the month you're not hungry at all. But a calorie allowance, oh, that word, is so dangerous because what happens on the days where women want to eat double and what happens on the days when they only they hardly need anything they're not hungry at all and the problem is the minute we go over the 2000 whatever the threshold is for you know whoever's working the calorie idea what happens you feel bad oh i'm guilty i'm wrong i went over my allowance and there's another thing that happens which and it'll be interesting to hear the you know uh, we'll dive into that whole, I'm not allowed 2000, more than 2000, so I'll, I'll drink instead because at least then I can get this kind of pre- preferred drug because it works in so many different ways that. But the faulty promise is I'm only allowed XYZ number. Now we've, premise, sorry. So we've got this, it's like this rule in our mind and yet it's not true. And if we could take it over a month, maybe some days you'd eat more and some days you'd eat less and it would balance itself out. But the minute there's a rule in there, what do we do? We rebel against it. So the more you think you can't have something, what happens? The more you want it. And so we've really got to open it up and go, if you really want another fajita, if your tummy really wants another fajita, you're going to have another one. Because chances are tomorrow, you're not going to be that hungry. But you can see the level of fear and letting go of that, that rule that feels so safe. But it's actually making things worse in the eating disorder recovery yeah. space. Um, and so while for some people, they can do the whole calorie deficit thing and there'll be another new, I mean, calorie deficit, the principle of energy in energy out has been around for ages, but now everybody's talking about calorie deficit. And I've seen the sudden wave of people that I've over the last year who are all telling me they have protein shakes in the morning. Now I'm sure that's something I would have done if that had been the trend 10 years ago, because I'm being convinced to think that that's what I'm supposed to eat. And so, Instead of actually listening, is my, is my body craving protein this morning? Because if I've just done a heavy workout, it will. No doubt about it. It's, you know, 
it's we have to break especially so when they much. got peanut butter in them <laughs> yeah i mean i've never had a protein shake i don't even know but i went through all the trends raw vegan you know i was trying everything because i thought if i could just get the food right if i could get the calories right and i could get the just if i could just be perfect yeah. the way i eat then surely i wouldn't have this problem with food but ironically that drive for perfectionism which is based on this incorrect mechanism was causing more trouble then it was actually making more of the problem so i wouldn't be surprised if to your point the people who are thinking man i've got this i'm only allowed 1500 2000 a day so let me drink in that allowance of course creates more of the drinking problem now they're not even getting the nutrients from the food they need when maybe if they'd eaten more they wouldn't drink as much i don't know i don't know but it's similar to the uh, allocated um units per week oh, 14 gosh, yes. units per week guidelines you know the government's guidelines that you drink no more than 14 yeah, units a yeah. week right now there's no benefit to alcohol at all like literally none right but these are guidelines but it's interesting what you say about sticking to rules or not because the rules are there to be broken right and I'm a bit of a scallion when it comes <laughs> yeah. to that. that and, and maybe that's with the old whole thing around the, the eating yeah. side is like, yeah, 2,000 calories a day. Well, I'm yeah. going to break <laughs> that, Because right? I'm going to have my peanut butter yeah. on toast and whatnot. We're only but human. It kind of encourages. We're what human. We do, and I'm really, like, <laughs> I have really good boundaries around honesty and stuff like that but it's my cheeky imp of the mind that plays tricks with me you know go on have a couple of i have one bit of peanut really love it do you know what i mean and you know this whole thing as well is where are these rules made because if you are 20 right you're and you can eat your restriction is 20 uh, 2000 calories a day like, I'm 59 soon, right? And when I was 20, I could eat like a pig and never put on an ounce, right? Now I'm 59, I could eat a bit of lettuce and put on two pounds. So that's another thing. It's about acceptance, right? Because I'm sure I've got body dysmorphia, right? Because everyone says, you look great, Dave. You look absolutely brilliant. And I'm looking in the mirror thinking... Oh, I can't hit, believe I'm hearing that, know? Dave. And, but I love your vulnerability around that because how many other people are thinking the same thing? Yeah, I have body dysmorphia that I look at. I did it this morning. Absolutely. I went to get in the shower and I checked in with myself because this weekend I've walked something like 36,000 steps, right? I've been, I've had a personal trainer. I've, I've really eaten carefully recently. You know, because I'm doing the Big Nakar Walk 21 Miles. This podcast will be out after I've done it. 21 miles in the Peak District and Morocco. Like, I'm climbing a mountain in Morocco. So, in my mind, it's like, right, there's a goal. There's a target. I can really um, get hold of this problem I've got with food. That's just a short-term goal because I'm sure that when I come back, I will want the reward of, you know, I've done all that now. I feel like I've lost a bit of weight and then I can reward myself. So again, it's about getting beneath the problem and my own relationship with food on the longer vision of actually it's how I talk to myself about my relationship with food. I'm greedy. Uh, I've got a terrible relationship with food. It's reframing that. 
you know, and, and also the whole thing about, well, what is my relationship? What was I taught as a child? Exactly. Uh, with my, you must clean the plate. Uh, sorry, mum, yeah. she's up there listening oh. to this. Bless her soul. <laughs> um, but you know, that, that was the era as well. You know, I grew up in the seventies, you know, and that, and that was the era that you must clean your plate and lick the gravy off the plate until you get your apple crumble, which I absolutely love as well, by the way. Uh, hot and cold apple crumble with, uh, ice cream. Um, but anyway. It, it's made me really, really think myself about how I speak to myself surrounding Huge. Food. And, I mean, we've picked up so many things just today. You know, I'm a fat git every time you look in the mirror. I mean, it's just horrific. And I can relate because I was so viciously cruel, relentlessly about my body. And it's about training. I mean, you talk about this training, you know, you're training the brain in a new way. And I can choose to continue to talk to myself like that in the mirror, but it doesn't make me very happy. So, you know, it's a, this whole recovery or sobriety business, I'm sure it's all the same. It's like, what do you want from life? Right, let's work it back from there. If you want to calorie count your whole life, by all means, knock yourself out. I personally chose, I wanted to have a much more free relationship with food. And the fear came up was, well, that's not possible. Because I had this story that if I was to actually listen to my body, I would just gain weight astronomically and become the you know Michelin woman. But actually, when you listen to your body's fullness, hunger and fullness, it's generally keeping you in a pretty good shape. Now, would I love to lose some weight? Always, because the society is saying weight loss is like the status symbol for for women. You know, the more weight you lose, if you wait, if you lose weight. It, oh, it shows that you've got discipline and you're not lazy and you're all these things. So there's this nagging voice because I'm in a society that's constantly saying, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. And I'm aware of that. So my work is about just when I notice it, just reminding myself, ah, I'm in a good body. I feel good today. I'm strong. I'm fit. I'm healthy. I feel good. And my job I, that I've chosen is when I see myself in the mirror and I hear that what I call a headworm kick in of like, oh, you're fat, you're ugly, all of the things. Oh, you look terrible in a bikini, you're getting so old. I just go take a deep breath and I'm just like, what do I want to think about this body? Oh, man, it's a great body. Yeah, it's a bit wobbly. I've got some things going on. I'm getting older. But I mean, I feel good today. And then, and then rock what you got. Go out there, do the nails, do the hair, do whatever you want. It's your thing, you know. And it would be such a shame for you to feel that you're you're a fat git when you've got this body that's no, I, I know. And and do you know what as well? It's like when I was drinking, uh, I've said before, I was on four different medications. Uh, I, my visceral fat was out of control. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I imagine my arteries were awful. My mental health, all of that. Right, I could list it for the whole podcast of what was wrong with me then. And now, um, bar the odd night, I sleep really well. My mental health is a different level. My physical health's a different level, you know. And I'm a lot more positive now. Uh, I see life differently. I've trained how I am with other people, you know. Um, yeah, I still have yeah. this thing. Now, where's that come from? I look in the mirror. And, and yeah. so basically, it's like one person in the room coming in full of a thousand people saying to me, um, you look great, Dave. And that one person says, yeah. you're a fat git. That is me. It's the mirror of me and my vision of myself. And that is what I need to work on. It's like, actually, like work on yourself there and 
don't be that one person that you're listening to above a thousand others saying yeah absolutely do you know what i mean absolutely and it's funny because i would never have guessed i mean this is the perfect example of the kind of clients we work with looking through your instagram feed having chatted to you i would never have guessed you were somebody who had any moment of dislike about your appearance you seem to come across as somebody who is just very all-embracing of who you are you're so real you're so raw i couldn't imagine this would be below the surface which I think speaks to what we said at the beginning about it being there's so much silent struggle and self-loathing around food and body. So there's lots of work to be done. And I think it's important also to acknowledge some men and women are in bodies that are, I mean, you gave up alcohol, which is such a joy because there's no nutritional value. It's only benefits on the way out. Um, And so you will be getting healthier. Your body will be changing. It might take time. I don't know how long it takes, but I imagine over the years, a lot of things have changed, including the visceral fat. So awesome. And similarly, people who've been overeating, losing control with sugar, and there's certain foods, obviously, that are problematic. You know, we don't want to demonize them, but it's we don't want to pretend there's nothing wrong with sugar. But, you know, we just, let's tranquilo, let's just calm it down and create a new relationship with that. You can always choose the healthy option when you have a sweet craving. You don't have to have, you know, a, I don't know, Reese's Pieces. You can have um, strawberries or whatever. It probably hit the spot just as well. Maybe not a bad example, but maybe you get a yeah. beautiful, like, rich, beautiful cacao-based chocolate, whatever. You, the craving's the same. you just got to reach it with the nice, healthful option. But what I wanted to just underline is some people will be listening to this who will actually be in bodies that are too heavy for their Goldilocks zone. So in that... They are carrying more weight, whether it be visceral fat from from drinking or whatever the case may be, or sugar, then their body is healthful in. There's no doubt about that. Not everybody. Some people are going to be fat shaming themselves and their body's perfectly fine. But some people will actually have excess fat on board due to years of drinking or eating, losing control. And there is often, if people are patient enough and willing to start listening to their body again, their body will guide them back into that Goldilocks zone. The weight loss will start to come off. It just won't come as fast as everybody would like. Everyone wants the eight-week shred, you know. <clears throat> but, you know, let's just take it slowly. Let's allow your body to speak to you. Let's mm. get those signals reconnected so we can allow your body to guide you back into its healthful place. Now, whether you are happy with it mm. when it's there, because a lot of people might be in perfectly healthy bodies, but internally they're shaming themselves. It sounds like that's kind of where you are. That's understandable because that's society and we're being taught that it's never enough. (laughs) Um, But we can choose what to do with it when it's there. But we want to make sure those markers are healthy and and we guide our bodies back there in a very loving, kind, but firm. You know, discipline is about a kind commitment to the things that serve us without there being this like self-flagellation. I can't have the peanut butter because we've seen what happens with that. It's, oh, then I want more of it. (laughs) So we've got to be kind and firm and listen, you know, it's listening to the body. When we ignore the craving for the peanut butter, chances are you'll hit the peanut butter jar even harder later when you're not actually listening to your body because there will be days when that is what it wants. Yeah, I, I hear that. And, you know, I was thinking then um, about um, how self-critical I am, right? And I, I, I put a picture of me um, four or five years ago uh, in Portugal, uh, and I was three stone heavier. And then if I'd said, look, look, here's a vision of you in four years' time. Uh, happy with that? I would be, yeah. oh, my God, yeah. I, I am so happy. 
Yeah, we just adjust I mean? our expectations. So it, it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um and and that's just yeah. visually like and say you know and you will be four and a bit years sober and life will be completely different for you you know. But the other thing is as well is that um in the sober community there are so many ambassadors and this person who came to me has struggled so much to find someone to help them and they found you and hence while we're speaking but they found you because you are, as they describe, very similar to me. What you see is what you get. Um, you're full of knowledge, but also you're a normal person where they tried other people and they were like, you know, all these wacky people that are selling big programs, but actually not nailing the truth behind it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to change in the future? Because she's really struggled to find someone to help. Yeah, that big deep sigh. The challenge is that disordered eating is kind of the new norm. So the way I work is I help people really start to relearn how to listen to their body. And there'll be plenty of well-respected people out there who will say, oh, you can't do that. And so it's challenging because even eating disorder recovery professionals, and I'm using air quotes there, often have a disordered relationship with food in the way we're talking about in that they have this very restrictive mindset and they might feel good or bad and so, so often you see people struggling with disordered eating and the, the prescription is, great, let's give you a meal plan. Let's get your nutrition dialed in. I'm like, but that's going to make the problem worse, worse often. So will there be more ambassadors? I think so. I think for every very restrictive tightening of any kind of rules and there's this natural backlash and I feel like I'm part of it. Do I see a lot of people talking about this? Yes, more than they were certainly 10 years ago when I could have, you know, done with this information. Um, thank goodness. And it will be a very challenging uphill battle because the current, I think we're um, getting sober is so cool because you're part of this wave, is it's becoming cool to be sober. You know, you almost feel a little bit judged if you're still drinking, like what are you doing still do that? We all know it's, you know, bad for you. Um, and so thank goodness that's changing. I think this embracing of listening to our body and loving our body foots toots as is is going to take a while now there are people out there who are promoting it was wonderful but i think it's one thing seeing somebody talk about it and it's another thing really beginning to want that for yourself and then doing the work required to have it and i think the reason it's so challenging is because the story that we can't trust our bodies and we need to be in caloric deficit and thin is the best thing ever is so prominent that i feel like this little whisper And it takes somebody really having to be desperate to stop in a way where they've tried all the diets and all the everything. And they're now so over the constant restriction and shame and all the guilt and all the things that they're actually going to say, you know what, even if I have to gain a few pounds on this journey, I will do it. I just don't want to be obsessed with food anymore. Please, I will do anything. And then they're willing to take that that leap. But hopefully after this conversation, some people will be thinking, maybe that leap's not so bad. I actually had a point. And if your intuition is saying, if you listen to this and your intuition is saying, oh, you know, I've always thought that maybe if I just listened to my body, I'd be okay. I probably wouldn't gain that much weight. Your instinct knows. That was the other tipping point, you know, that really turned me. It was one starting to reframe it as addiction. So I felt a lot less shame about the losing control, about the not being able to stop. But the second one was, it was this little whisper that said, what if you just ate when you're hungry and you know, just ate what your body wanted. 
And I just had this intuition that was like, I bet if I actually just gave myself what I wanted, I probably wouldn't put on weight. And that's exactly what happened. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It was a slow process. And that's okay. You don't have to rush this process. You can take take your time with recovery. Unlike, I think, with alcohol where I'm sure you'd advise to just, you know, don't try and wean yourself off alcohol. I can't imagine that really works. It's probably better to just make the decision. Well, it, it works when when there's a dependency ah, yes, of course, on alcohol that makes sense. it's dangerous to, to, um, to stop. But for the majority of my, well, all of my clients are grey area drinkers. So it's slightly yes, different Yes, of course, there, that makes sense. You know? Absolutely. But, um, right, let's round it off, right? So a lot of my clients have a bad relationship with alcohol and food. So what would you recommend they tackled first? The relationship with the booze or the relationship uh, with the food? It's a slam dunk. First of all, I love that you've said first as opposed to should they do them both together because I don't know if you if this is your experience as well. It's just better to do one thing at a time. It's quite a lot to take on to try and mm, smash everything. Definitely. I want to do smoking and booze and food. Like, woof, let's just let's get some progress in one area. And the obvious one is, is from my experience as well, it's booze first because your relationship, it's so much easier to slow all this down, to do all this focused work when you're not dealing with the, the booze that makes it harder to tell if you're hungry or full and then you make bad decisions when you've had too much. So obviously somebody's going to get way more wins on the eating, disordered eating recovery front when they're not dealing with this, yeah, what is it, a... When you, it's like your brain goes offline a little bit with booze, doesn't it? So it's hard to make good decisions. Yeah. Well, you're, you're not, you're not yeah. present with booze. And, and, you know, that whole hamster wheel where you will make different decisions in the morning and they will start to change lunchtime. And then by the evening, you're drinking and then you think, oh, okay, I fancy a, a Chinese or there's a pizza in the freezer or something. Or I've got a big bar of chocolate that I'm going to devour so i i think it's just too hard so i think you need to get rid of the booze and also with food because you have to do it every single day this is like such a huge picture so i don't want to undervalue people that look at um alcoholism as a full lifetime recovery thing right but for me I rather than look at recovery, as people know, I look at discovery because now I've got over the physical cravings of alcohol. I've learned to live my life without alcohol. I look forward, you know, I, I rarely have cravings, but I imagine that if it was my relationship with food, because I'm doing it every single day, I'd have to look at my relationship differently. And this is why I think removing the alcohol from your life is so important to do that first. It allows the bandwidth in your head to focus on your relationship exactly. with food. Exactly, because if, if somebody was to come to me and say they have a really challenging relationship with booze and food, it's a no-brainer to say, let's get the booze, let's get you off the booze, and then it's just, it's just going to make your relationship with food changing so much easier, <laughs> just so much easier. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. I've just got the clear download if I had a glass of wine at five, whoo, I'd just lose control around dinner because it's, it's like I didn't even remember to do what I was supposed to be doing. So then I was like, oh, well, actually, if you want the recovery on the food piece, best you, if you're going to have a drink, have it after dinner <laughs> so that you're not trying to fight with the booze for attention or whatever. I'm not sure. It's just about, I just would forget. I'd forget to do my tummy check. And then the next thing I know, it was I was negotiating with myself that I may as well one last time won't hurt, you know. 
it was, it's interesting, but the minute the booze wasn't there, oh, I was able to give dinner that focused attention that it requires. Because it's the end of the day and we're exhausted. And I think, you know, a glass of wine or two and you just forget everything you need to remember. So, yeah, the sooner you can really take on the challenge of eliminating booze from the equation or whatever moderation of somebody, I mean, you'll have a better take on this. But, I mean, first prize, get rid of the booze. That'll make everything easier. Um, but absolutely, work on that first. Get some real wins under your belt. And then we'll start dealing with the, the food piece. So, yeah, it's a journey, and I think maybe that's a bit scary. People think, God, I'm never going to be out of this. But it, it can happen a lot faster than we think when we've got a willingness to go for it all in and really play, be playful and just dive in and see where you go. Oh, Helen, it's been absolutely brilliant. And I think I've learned uh, some nuggets about myself as well on this. And this is why I love doing this podcast, because sometimes uh, a coaching session for me, you know, yeah. I know, uh, I was itching to get in there. I was like, ooh, <laughs> the little coaching uh, desire was kicking in. Thank you, Dave. I know, I know. Uh, it's been a real joy, and I'm going to put all your um, details Wonderful. in the show Thank notes. So, so if people want to reach out to you, they know where to find you. Um, this conversation go on for a lot longer, but I always try and keep it within a time bandwidth so people, you know, like to hear it on the way to work or on their walk and that. So, but you know, there's room for another one, uh, another day. But thank you so much for joining me. You've been such a brilliant guest, uh, and I hope to thank see you. Thank you so soon. much, Dave. It's an absolute pleasure, and thanks for everything you do in the space as well. Thanks, Helen. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.